Well, it's my joy and privilege to introduce to you uh, here, second in a string of three uh, guest speakers that we're having here at the start of the year, three of our RUF campus ministers. Uh, Austin Royal is our new guy there at Austin P. Now, at the risk of swelling up his head, I'm going to say this. He is an answer to prayer, uh, and that ministry is an answer to prayer. Um, a lot of you may remember that we were talking about this, oh, three, four years ago, thinking that best case scenario, we were looking at 2018-19, uh, somewhere in that time frame to see uh, a beachhead for Reform University Fellowship established just down the campus uh, there at Austin P. And in particular, why this is such a great answer to prayer is, of course, because those of you who are familiar with this ministry uh, know that these are seminary-trained and or licensed and ordained men, campus ministers, pastors there on those campuses, which then brings me to how we cannot stop. Uh, our prayers have just begun. Uh, as Austin is form trying to start relationships there and making contacts there and just beginning the initial groundwork there, he and Luke as well are going through the, shall I say, joys and sorrows of licensure and ordination exams. And uh, he's got a lot going on these days. They both do. So, uh, Austin, come on up here. Let's welcome this guy. Glad you're here. Please don't clap. It's okay. Thank you for that introduction, Richard. Um, Austin P is an answer prayer to me and my wife as well. We've been wanting to do RUF for a long time, and uh, it's really exciting for us to be here, and um, feels like a great fit for us. So we are very thankful to have been called here. <clears throat> so thank you for praying for us. Um, if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke 15, 1 through 6. We're going to look at uh, the parable of the lost sheep this morning. <clears throat> uh, hear the word of the Lord from Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he is found? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends, his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> you are a good God, and it is hard for us to see that sometimes. You are a loving shepherd. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see how good you are how you pursue us, how you come after us. Uh, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you pay attention to the news, every couple of months you'll see an article about a wild animal that's been killed by a hunter. And usually it's intended to raise awareness about big game hunting. Uh, 
As you might imagine, these articles aren't intended to encourage big game hunting. Usually it's public response, public outcry against it. Um, and if you look at the news right now, there's actually a story about a 12-year-old girl who's hunting in Africa with her father right now, and it has not been received well. But uh, one of the most famous stories uh, about a hunter killing a wild animal uh, is about Cecil the lion. Uh, perhaps you remember this story. It was national news for a long time, about a year ago. Uh, but a, a dentist went over to Africa, uh, paid a large sum of money for one tag to kill one lion. And the thing is, he killed the wrong lion. Because Cecil the lion was actually a well-known, well-loved lion who lives on a wildlife preserve in Zimbabwe. And so when Cecil was killed, everyone found out about it. Uh, and by the time I saw the article, I heard the story, everyone had given their initial reaction. As I'm reading this article, between two paragraphs in bold letters is this Twitter response from a known celebrity, and it said this. She said, I hope this dentist loses his home, his practice, and his money. He's already lost his soul. She went on to say, I want this man to be destroyed. Uh, now, I was shocked, not because I don't love lions, um, <laughs> but she makes it very clear what she wants. She wants this man's life ripped apart, and thousands of voices followed her. People wanted him hang, to go bankrupt, to live his life as a beggar. Every tweet, every blog, every internet rant was saying, I have the right to judge and condemn this man for what he's done. And I don't think it's difficult for us to imagine this happening. Because humans, we love to hate. We love to condemn. We love to call out people when they've wronged us. Think about this. When you have an idea of what's important, when there's something you value, and someone goes against you, what do you do? You either tend to dismiss them and distance yourself from them, or you go after them, and you attack them. And this morning, I'm here to tell you, God's different. He's different than you and me. He does things, responds to things, thinks, acts, smells different than me and you. God treats humans different than tre humans treat other humans. You see, we think God is often just like us, quick-tempered, easily angered, always coming after us, willing to push us aside, leave us behind as soon as we slip up or as soon as we can't keep up. And if you fall into the trap of believing God is like you or he's like the people around you, you'll never turn to Jesus. You'll never see Jesus as your shepherd. You'll never actually believe that God could move towards the unlovely, move towards people that turn away from him. You'll never believe he'll actually be patient with you and gently care for you in the places you're lost, in the places you're stuck. We're going to look at three things this morning. Jesus' mission statement, his shepherding heart, and Jesus' celebration. So first, Jesus' mission statement. Uh, the, the parable begins with some characters that we're pretty familiar with. Tax collectors, Pharisees, sinners, scribes, um, characters we see throughout uh, the Gospels. And in verse 2, the Pharisees say this about Jesus. They say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, you, you probably all know what a mission statement is. 
a mission statement is something that a corporation or organization puts on their website, puts on a pamphlet, says, this is what we're about. It's this all-encompassing statement that summarizes who they are and what they want you to know about them. It's what they value. And what the Pharisees say about Jesus is tightly connected to who he actually is, tightly connected to his mission in the world. He moves towards sinners. We see it throughout the Gospels. He moves towards the unlovely, people that no one else cares about. And he doesn't just move towards them. He dines with them. He makes his presence known to them. He eats, shares intimate moments around the table with them. He's very personal. And Pharisees don't understand this. And I think it's, it's hard for us to believe it too. Uh, because I think we often look at God from two different vantage points. From the Pharisees and from the tax collectors. And both have a hard time understanding God's love. You see... We just see him as someone who only takes good people, only people who've kept their lives clean and tidy, or we see him as someone who would never go towards sinners, people who have a past, people who have black stains that they cannot hide. Uh, you see, both Pharisees and tax collectors have a hard time understanding Jesus because Pharisees, they were the religious elite. Everyone looked at them and said, I want to be just as spiritual as they are. But the Bible presents them in a way where they actually miss God. Even though it looks like they're standing right beside God, they've missed it. They claim to know him, but they don't know that their sin keeps them away from him. They use religion, they use their good works, they use their spirituality to actually keep God as far away as possible. Um, and what the Pharisee in us doesn't realize is we need God's grace just as much as the person we think of, who we think of, could never be near to God. In the tax collector, we, we kind of swing to the opposite end of the spectrum. You either don't care about God, or you think he'd actually never come and love you. You don't think you can get close to God. You don't think he would ever move towards you, and that you could ever be good enough to move towards him. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, uh, we probably seesaw back and forth between the two. I think we're kind of like this blended wine of Pharisee and tax collector. It just depends on the day of the week which flavor comes out more. If we think we've been good, we think we've been following the rules, then we think God loves us. But if we've slipped up, if we've gotten angry, if we've struggled in ways that we don't usually during the week, well, all of a sudden we think God's really mad at us. And we're going to have to earn our way back to him. Uh, but God's different than you think he is. He doesn't fit inside the box you've created for him. Because the Pharisee in us and the tax collector in us, we, ha we have to understand, we have to hear this parable, because it doesn't matter if you're trending toward one or the other. Both eventually avoid Jesus. Both eventually want nothing to do with Jesus. They might be driving different cars, but they're headed down the same road. They're quickly following each other out, out of town, and it's away from Jesus. They want nothing to do with them, and the only thing, their only hope, is for Jesus to jump into the car with them and jerk the wheel in another direction. But that's what Jesus does. That's what this parable is telling us Jesus does. You need him to come after you. You need him to come after you every day. And Jesus says, I will. Jesus says 
he echoes something the Pharisees say in Luke 19. He says this, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It's his mission to come after the lost. He's been doing it for a long time, and he comes after you in your self-righteousness and pride, where you don't think you need them, or in your guilt and shame after you've binged on your favorite pet sin for the 50th time this week. Jesus says, you're lost there, and I will come to you there. Let me find you in those moments. Let me find you in your lostness and transform you. See, this is what the whole Bible is about. You see it from the beginning in Genesis. God moving towards Adam and Eve after they ate the fruit. God moving towards enslaved Israel and then continuing to come after them even in their rebellion in the wilderness. God moving towards Saul, the Pharisee, persecutor of his church. And now God moves towards me and you. It's his mission. It's what he's about. He's been doing it for a long time. He's still moving towards the unlovable, the rebellious, the lousy servants. In order to illustrate this, Jesus tells a parable about a shepherd and a sheep, which leads us to the second point, Jesus' shepherding heart. Uh, so in response to this statement by the Pharisees, Jesus tells us this parable, and we've entitled the parable of the lost sheep. And we all know sheep, uh, they're helpless on their own. They don't make wise decisions. They can't defend themselves. They're usually doing something dumb. Um, they're kind of like children, except every once in a while, children will actually listen to you and get everything right. Sheep aren't that savvy. Uh, but if you look closely at the parable, if you look at your text, it really isn't about the sheep. The parable is about the shepherd and his response to the sheep. And Jesus begins the parable by saying, What man of you? He's saying, Let me ask you, what do you do if you lose something that's dear and near to your heart? Think about it for a second. When you lose something you love, you go after it. Uh, when I was younger, we had this huge yellow lab. We used to ride them around our yard. Um, but we didn't have a fence in our yard. And so he just was on a line, and every once in a while he'd get off his line. Uh, and we grew up between two different elementary schools. And so usually when Duke would run off on his adventures, he would hear noise at these playgrounds, and he would run toward the noise. Um, and I actually attended one of those schools, and when you're in elementary school, and you're at recess, and your dog runs onto the playground and starts playing, like, it's the coolest thing ever. Um, but one day, Duke ran off, and he didn't come home, and we couldn't find him. So what do you think we did? We searched for him. We put up flyers on telephone poles. We, we asked the neighbors if they'd seen him. We turned up every stone looking for Duke. I'm sure some of you have had similar situations. Um, but we eventually found them in a neighborhood on the other side of one of the schools. Um, and it took a while. But when you lose something you love, you go after it. Um, but think about this. What happens when you're out in the yard working, walking in the neighborhood, and a stranger comes up to you and say, like, says, hey, I've lost my child. I've lost my pet. What do you do? What do you do when you see a flyer on a telephone pole that says, missing dog? Well, if you know anything about it, if you can help, you do. But if not, you dismiss it. You don't think about it again. It, it means nothing to you. Uh, because what's lost doesn't mean anything. Like It doesn't matter to you. And Jesus says to this story to say, look, 
just like you go after things you love, God does the same thing. It's just not exactly how you expect it. God loves you. He sees you as his treasure possession, which means when you wander off, he comes after you. When we wander away, Jesus is driven by love, not wrath, to come after you. See, Jesus knows a sheep lost in the wilderness is no better than a child lost in a dark alley in New York City. That child has no chance on its own. He can't survive. Nothing is going to get the child through the night. He needs a shepherd. But you don't have to be a child in a dark alley to know what it's like to feel lost, to know what it's like to feel afraid, to be alone, to know what it's like to not be able to make sense of life, to feel like nobody cares and nothing will change, to have turned away and to now be stuck in a cycle that you can't get out of. Listen, we know what it's like to be lost. And Jesus says, those are the places I'm moving towards you. I'm coming to you there. Let me find you in those moments. Turn to me in the moments when the pressures of work or the idea that I need to escape this or cheat to get ahead uh, or what's going on in your mind. Turn to me in the moments when anger, rage, impatience at your spouse or your children is the only thing that feels like a good response or maybe it's the only way you've responded to them for the last three months. Turn to me in the moments when porn or some substance abuse feels like the only way to make the feeling of loneliness and anxiety go away. Turn to me in the moments when loving your children and caring for them is the last thing you want to do. Turn to me when running and escaping reality, the reality of relationships, your marriage, your work, your debt, feels like the only good response. Jesus says, let me find you in those moments. Let me be your shepherd in those moments. It's the places you struggle. It's the places you're weak. Jesus wants to be your shepherd there. And for some reason, we don't believe this. Whether it's the Pharisee in us or the tax collector in us or whatever it is, we don't believe Jesus wants to be our shepherd in these moments. We don't believe he'll actually meet us with grace. We don't believe that he'll come to us in love in the places where we fall short and don't measure up. And if you feel this way, Jesus is saying, no, that's not true. Um, listen to what the text says about the shepherd. He leaves the 99 to go after the one. He seeks. He finds. He lays on his shoulder. He rejoices and celebrates and calls all his friends to do the same. He rejoices over what's found. It's love and care. A God who pays attention to the 1%, to individuals. I think we read this and our initial reaction is, that's not the God I know. That's not my experience. Uh, we tend to think God, he's not that interested in us. He's got better things to do like sustaining the universe. Um, but one of the classic texts that kind of describe how big and great God is, is Isaiah 40, which Richard actually read last week. Um, and you're probably familiar with some of the images from that passage, like he measures the waters in the hollow of his hands. He weighs mountains in the scales and hills in a balance. 
Nations are as nothing before them. They're like a drop in a bucket. Isaiah can't help but proclaim how big and great and awesome God is. <clears throat> and I think we're like, yeah, I can agree with that. Um, but these are, the, these are the places we don't often question God. We're more often asking, is God good? Is he near me? Does he care for me? Can he be trusted with the fragile places in my life? And what's interesting about Isaiah 40 is, before all this talk about how great and powerful God is, before he says all these things, Isaiah says something different. Listen to this. Listen to Isaiah 41, 40, 11, and let it sink into your bones. Isaiah 40, 11 says this. God will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This big, powerful, just, righteous, fill-in-the-blank God, he's also a tender, loving shepherd moving towards you, tending to you, loving you, loving the lost. He's gathering individuals to himself. He's actually bending over backwards to meet you with grace. When Isaiah begins to describe God, he leads with God as loving shepherd because that's who God is. It's just as true to his nature as how big and great and powerful it is. he is. And I think we've heard too many stories about God as this cruel taskmaster, uh, this distant embrace of God that can't often be trusted, or we've had too many moments in our own life where voices in our head are saying, you're not worth it. You've gone too far this time. There's no turning back. No one will love you. And we think it's God speaking to us. But God's different. He offers mercy. He leads with grace. When everyone stopped looking, when no one else cares, God compassionately meets us in our lostness, comes to the places where we're struggling, where we're weak, and he says, let me love you here. Let me bring life to the dead places in your heart. Jesus doesn't look down on you when you're lost. He looks for you. It's what he does. He, it's what gentle, persistent shepherds do with their sheep. And when he finds you, he celebrates. Uh, there's joy in heaven, and that leads us to our third point, which is Jesus' celebration. Uh, at the end of the parable, Jesus he ushers us into heaven and uh, shows us what happens when sinners turn back to God. I and mean, what we see is, well, God parties. Uh, he celebrates when people turn to him. He celebrates repentance. He celebrates and rejoices with lost people turning to him in faith and repentance. <clears throat> and I think we can get behind this. Like, I know enough of you to know that you like to get together and celebrate. Um, but why do we celebrate? What's the occasion we celebrate, rightfully, what's good and beautiful. We celebrate at weddings, uh, the birth of children, birthdays, students graduating, major holidays that symbolize, symbolize significant events that are good. Um, things that should be celebrated. But who celebrates the return of the misfit? Who celebrates finding some worn-out tool or some whole written shirt that should have been thrown, years, thrown away years ago. 
Who celebrates finding what everyone else wishes would stay lost, would stay uncovered, uh, would stay out of sight? We don't. It's not good or beautiful. But God celebrates when he finds us. He's had countless times to say you're not worth it, that you don't matter, to turn his back on anybody doesn't, and he comes to you freely offering himself every day. And if you want to experience Jesus, to know that presence in your life, you have to let him in. You have to let down your defenses to stop hiding from God in the places you think he might punish you and open up to him there and say, Lord, come and meet me here. Um, The only way to do this, though, is to know Jesus is a beautiful Savior who covers your sin who covers your shortcomings. He covers the places you don't measure up. He's a Savior who gives his righteousness to people who are bankrupt before God. A Savior who knows you're not perfect and yet at the same time loves you anyways. God isn't waiting to smack you on the head with a staff every time you sin like some reckless shepherd with a bad temper. Perhaps you've been told that or you believe that. Um, but he's not like everyone else. In Christ, he's filled with overflowing mercy and grace for his people. He offers forgiveness, and he moves towards you with that offer into your brokenness, into your struggles, into your weaknesses, and says, let me love you in these places. Um, Jesus is a shepherd and a savior who comes after you, people like you and me. Um, He freely offers himself every day, which begs the question, is this just a conversion story? Now, I think we see this passage and we think conversion. God swooping in to rescue some long-lost sinner. Now, what is that? But it's deeper. Um, It's more than conversion, and it's also more than a story about your crazy uncle who fell off the deep end a few years ago, left his family, left the church, and then, after a while, came back. Um... If that's all we see, we've missed it. You see, those are just the big moments of sin in our lives. Um, That's what we think about when we see this passage. Um, But we need Jesus. Uh, We need his mercy every day. And we need it over and over and over again, which means... Your need for Jesus is this continual, ongoing thing. He doesn't rescue you and then say everything else is up to you. He doesn't save you and then act as if you don't need him. This parable is the parable of our lives in Christ. Pre-Christian, post-Christian, and everything in between till the day we drop. Because we daily make decisions that reveal a heart that can't help but cast an eye to the pastures of the world. The stuff over there that looks a little bit more fun, a little bit greener than the pastures of the Good Shepherd. You see, this is a summary of our lives in Christ. Jesus invites you into gospel where he comes after you every day. Not just once, but every day. There's no good news if it's just a one-time thing because the Pharisee in us, the tax collector in us, is still there. We still struggle with sin. We need a God that comes after us every day, and that's who Jesus is. And he offers himself to us every day. Um, I'll close with this story and maybe a couple points of application. Uh, 
there's a reality TV show called 19 and Counting. Uh, maybe you've heard of it. I don't know that it's still aired. Um, but it, it follows this family called the Duggars. And it's a Christian family with 19 children. It's a lot. Um, but the oldest son is named Josh Duggar. And he's been in the news for all the wrong reasons for the last year. Um, Josh is married with four children. He's this outspoken Christian. And earlier last year, he was caught in adultery. Uh, it was a horrible breach of trust uh, with lies and lies of deceit. Uh, and because he's a Christian and was on the show, it became uh, national news. Um, and what's interesting about Josh is when you look at his life, he kind of embodied uh, this Pharisee and tax collector, what we've been talking about. Uh, on the outside, he was this outspoken Christian doing all the right things. Um, but on the inside, he was rotting away. In his secret moments, he was in outright rebellion against God. Um, and it was all uncovered. Um, and so his world kind of came crashing down after that. But here's the thing. God hates adultery. But God's offer of forgiveness in Christ goes out to Josh Duggar. Jesus is that big of a savior. He's that persistent of a shepherd. Uh, in fact, I think you could say all this stuff coming out, being uncovered, was Jesus actually going after Josh, seeking him out, calling him back to himself. And now Josh has to make the decision of whether or not he's going to turn in faith and repentance or not. Um, but Josh still has to face the consequences of his sin. Uh, he still has to live with the pain that he's put his family through. Um, his marriage may not survive. Family devastated. Um, he still has a long, a long road ahead of him. But if he chooses Jesus, he won't be alone. He'll have a shepherd who's willingly walking through the mud and muck of his life, uh, through these broken areas, and a redeemer who promises to be with him every day. God isn't like us. He's different. God knows what he's got himself into when he says, I will be your shepherd. I will be near you. I will pursue you in your lostness because I love the unlovable. And I willingly take their sin upon me. Um, real quick, a, uh, you know, as we think about this, um, I think a passage like this means the mental checklist we keep in our mind of the specific sins that people in our family, siblings, spouse do against us, we can't keep that anymore. We have to scrap it. Um, when we want to leverage things over people um, because of things they've done in the past, uh, we have to look at a Savior who offers daily forgiveness and recognize we're just as dependent on him as they are. Um, I think a passage like this also means that repentance... Uh, turning from sin, fighting sin, seeking new obedience in Christ is one, it's, it's something that we're called to every day. Um, the little moments. Uh, it's not just big things where we turn away from Jesus. There's the little moments. Um, but in those little mo moments, uh, God rejoices over your repentance. The little ordinary moments where you choose to fight sin and live by faith, God rejoices with that. And be encouraged. Um, it's not for nothing, even though I know sometimes it feels like it's for nothing.
Um, we need a God like this shepherd every day. Not one who saves you and then tells you to go off on your own and try and figure it all out, but one who meets you every day where you're lost, where you struggle, and says, let me carry you today. My grace is sufficient for you. And the question for us now is, um, are we going to get through this week with the same coping mechanisms, the same way always, we always have, the same escape outlets, the same places we get stuck, uh, or will we let our shepherd Jesus turn to us in our lostness, um, find you in those places, uh, and actually let you or let him carry you there? He is a gracious and persistent shepherd who offers you every day in those moments. Turn to him and trust him there. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you tell a different story about yourself than we expect. Um, thank you that you are a loving shepherd who cares for us in our neediness. Um, Lord, we admit we have such a little imagination for how gentle and loving you really are and pray that you would help us to grasp these truths um, that you turn to us not in wrath but in grace and willingly lavish it upon us. And I pray that we would receive it. And I pray that you would show up this week in the moments where we think you're absent, where we think you don't care, uh, and that you would love us there and that we would allow you to love us there. Uh, Lord, we pray that you continue to move towards us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>